Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. July 1st marks the one-year anniversary of the signing of the Canada-U.S.-Mexico Free Trade Agreement, Kuzma, and the first day it takes effect. As we see light at the end of the COVID-19 tunnel, the trade agreement and the coronavirus are poised to change the automotive sector forever. For insight into what's next, we turn to Megan Nichols, the Director General of Environmental Policy at Transport Canada, and KPMG's partner in the trade and customs practice, Joy Knott. We began by asking Joy what we've learned over the last year during this implementation phase. Great question, Michael. There's a couple of things that we've learned. For starters, when legislation gets um, negotiated, despite the fact that administrations may come and go, so for example, in the United States, they had an election, it's a different president now than was president at the time the goods, uh, the, the free trade agreement was negotiated. Um, a question that I'm often asked is, will the new administration make a difference in the way that the new free trade agreement is administered or will there be any changes because there's a new administration in the state? And I mean, the operational answer to that is no. We agree to a, a treaty, to a free trade agreement. The law is written and now the law needs to be implemented and operationalized. So I think one of the things that people are learning is that a lot of the uncertainty that has been around for the past four years is still continuing despite the fact the negotiations are over, the ink is dry on the legislation, and elections have come and gone and we have a new administration in the United States. Some of the elements around supply chain uncertainty still exist. Some of that is related to COVID, some of it's directly related to the free trade agreement. How has Kuzma affected the automotive industry in Canada specifically? Well, I think you'd have to pretty much have been living under a rock not to realize that the, the new free trade agreement that was negotiated, the automotive industry was the star industry on the middle of the negotiation tables. The rules of origin and, and everything around the automotive industry was the industry that was impacted the most by change and was certainly the industry that was discussed the most. One of the main things that came out of that new agreement was the fact that it started on a July 1st as opposed to a January 1st start date. And you think, well, what's the difference, right? What difference does it make what date at a free trade agreement actually starts? It, when you come to the automotive industry, it actually makes a very large difference. OEMs and a lot of original equipment manufacturers, companies who actually make cars, tier one parts suppliers, often they work on an uh, and especially OEMs, an averaged way, they, they take the math and they average it over an entire calendar year. And that's how they crunch some of the numbers in order to comply with the free trade agreement. So when for 25 years, you've been crunching numbers that start on January 1st and end on December 31st every year for 25 years, and you've got you know production lines of cars rolling through and all of a sudden, you know, hit the brakes. Now we're, we're moving to a completely different set of numbers and some different rules. I won't get into the, the technical nitty gritty, but then some of those backdrop rules also changed along with the, like the actual numbers that need to be plugged into certain formulas. For example, from 62.5% North American content up to 75% North American content. Okay, great. So now we got different numbers, different rules, and suddenly the calendar year is supposed to start on July 1st as opposed to January 1st. So that's that's sort of one big, 
you know, I'll call it, it's an annoyance factor, but it's certainly disruptive. It's disruptive in the way a lot of, um, you know, calculating whether or not the free trade agreement can be applied. And then there's just one other thing that I wanted to mention relative to the free trade agreement. Because it was sort of, it was negotiated and agreed upon and sort of all three countries finally came to that final agreement in April and that the free trade agreement kicked in for a July 1st start date because there was such a short runway. When you look at the uh, amount of time that most free trade agreements give industry to get prepared, it's usually the 12 to 18 month. You, you know 12 to 18 months out, there's going to be a new free trade agreement. In this particular case, it was in April, people found out July 1st, my rules are changing in the industry for automotive. So people could apply for an alternate staging, they could apply to the governments to say, I, I, I can't be ready in 90 days. My supply chains are too complex. It's just too much change for me to spin on a dime like this. May I please have an extended period of time, an alternate staging, so that give me some more runway to get ready for this. And the applications are have been in, they've been processed, and different companies now have different amounts of runway as to some have to comply today, some got permission to only have to comply within 18 months, some have 12 months. So, I mean, there's a little bit of, um, I'll call it confusion, um, simply because not everybody is on the same start date, if that sort of makes sense. Some people got extensions uh, to get their homework done, if you want to look at it that way, which, again, is just a complicating factor in the industry. Another complicating factor in the industry is the government has rather ambitious greenhouse gas reduction targets, and the automotive sector is going to be one of those that is going to play a very big role in that. Megan, give us some insight as we talk about the future of the automotive sector as to the role that Ottawa sees the transportation sector playing in reducing GHG. Transportation is the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Canada, and almost half of those come from cars and light trucks. So that's that's about 12% of Canada's total emissions. And uh, by 2030, transportation is expected to be the number one source of emissions in Canada. And, and that's really just reflective of how difficult it is to abate emissions in many modes of transportation and, and also the length of time it takes to see the effects of measures in uh, the transportation sector. Um, at the same time, as you mentioned, Michael, our emissions targets keep getting more ambitious. So the federal government just recently announced uh, a new emissions reduction target of uh, bringing our emissions down by 40 to 45 percent um, by 2030 below 2005 levels. So that means all sectors are going to have to uh, contribute more. And uh, for the transportation sector, the, the best bet is really through zero emission vehicles in the light duty sector. And that's uh, because of all modes of transportation. That's where the technological readiness is um, and, and where we're starting to see that larger deployment um, of these of these vehicles. Uh, so, so in response to this, um, actually back in early 2019, the federal government set sales targets for zero emission vehicles of 10% uh, of new light-duty light vehicles by 2025, 30% uh, by 2030, and 100% uh, by 2040. 
um, you know, it, it does seem ambitious, but this is very much in line with what we're seeing other um, like-minded countries doing, uh, doing across the globe. So, Joy, does Kuzma make this an easier target to reach or is it making it more difficult for the industry? I mean, I think technically the answer to that is Kuzma not, was not designed to make it either easier or more difficult. But then stepping back and just looking at the reality of, of life and what's happened since uh, July 1st of last year, the automotive industry, just like everybody else, has had to go through COVID and the various supply chain disruptions that come with that while dealing with a new free trade agreement that changed the rules dramatically for their industry sector. So you've got disrupted supply chains, disrupted for two reasons, disrupted one because of COVID and two because has they started to try and re-vector supply chains to import and export slightly differently than they were in the past to comply or to you know squeeze all the juice out of that new free trade agreement. You had a lot of supply chain changes, which then leads to just complicated. It's a complicated business and a complicated industry sector right now, let alone, you know, everything else that's happening, meaning timelines that internationally are being set um, relative to various greenhouse gases. And then, of course, you know, just to, to follow up on what Megan was saying, various goalposts that have been put in place by the Canadian government and other governments uh, around the world because our automotive industry is not strictly a Canadian automotive industry. We're highly integrated with, of course, our partners to the South, the Americans, highly integrated again with Europe and to some degree, Japan and Korea as well. So if, you know, amongst others. So, you know, if you're sitting in a boardroom and you're trying to come up with senior management decisions for the automotive industry, it's certainly, it's like a Rubik's Cube that the, the squares keep changing on you every time you look at it. So there's a lot of um, disruption right now. But if the majority of greenhouse gas reductions in the transportation sector are expected to come from passenger vehicles, are we making those types of vehicles that have a lower carbon footprint? Or are we going to end up taking a back seat to other countries that are going to fill the void of demand that's created when we make these kinds of goals? You know, I might not be the best person to answer that particular question, but I mean, I think of uh, my friend Flavio Volpe from uh, the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, and he's certainly a big believer that Canada has a um, place and a, an important role to play in that particular area. Uh, you know, and he, he talks a lot about, um, you know, our, our ability as a country to really lean in on that new green energy and like the whole battery technology. So I'll sort of leave it there because I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about the, the actual direction that the industry is taking when it comes to um, passenger vehicles, but I know I know I've heard, like I said, I've heard Flavio speak to it many times, and I do think that there is a role for Canada there. Well, as someone who is on um, the advisory board for the Project Arrow that you're talking about, this this plan he's got to build Canada's first uh, zero emissions all-electric vehicle, that, that's really quite a, a remarkable goal. Uh, Megan, do you have any thoughts at Transport Canada about you know, reviving this long-lost Canadian heritage of the Avro Arrow and putting four wheels on it instead of wings? <laughs> 
the North American auto industry is highly integrated. Uh, Canadians and Americans are buying the same cars. Our manufacturing sector is, is completely integrated. Uh, Canada and U.S. have um, harmonized LDV emissions regulations, which is which is another key point. I would also say, though, that, you know, I think we're really at a really interesting um, transition point and, and even a tipping point because we're starting to see more and more automakers themselves come out with new announcements and targets around selling these zero emission vehicles. Um, GM has announced 100 uh, percent zero emission vehicles by 2035, Honda 80% by 2035, 100% by 2040, uh, Ford 40% by 2035. So, And, and that's just a sample. So I, I really think we're seeing a, a bit of a, a tide change and we're seeing industry coming along as a partner in this transition. Um, the federal government, just in its most recent uh, budget, Budget 2021, also made some new commitments to supporting the industry in this transition. For example, uh, we've we've put $8 billion in the, the net zero accelerator to help industries across all sectors um, contribute more to, to clean tech and greenhouse gas reductions. Uh, we've also seen the announcement in that same budget of, um, of a uh, business tax cut for those who are manufacturing and developing zero emission vehicle technologies. So I, I really think we're at a very exciting time. We will require transport trucks to cut emissions. Are we seeing evidence that the industry is moving towards the electrification that's required to accomplish this? I would say we're definitely seeing uh, evidence of this in the light duty vehicle sector. Um, and, and as I mentioned, that's really the area where we see, we're seeing the technologies at scale. It's being it's being mass produced um, since uh, 2018. We've seen, you know, year over year growth in sales of zero emission vehicles. Uh, that's cars and light duty pickups. So uh, back in 2018, um, the, the, the share of, of ZEV sales was about 2%. Uh, in 2019, it was up to 3%. Uh, 2020, it was at 3.8%. And uh, actually, this first quarter of 2021, we're, we're at 5%. So we're seeing, you know, I'd say slow but steady progress towards those um, sales targets that the government has set out in the light duty vehicle sector. When it comes to the heavy duty vehicle sector, that is really a whole other um, discussion. Uh, in that area, the, the technology is still much more in its infancy and at a nascent stage. Th those solutions are there for electrification for um, short haul trips, um, you know, things like delivery vans and, and service vehicles. But when we start to talk about the long haul trucking sector, which is obviously very key for Canada for moving moving goods, uh, that's where really the, the, the technology still has, has a way to go. So, um, so the heavy duty vehicle sector is going to be, be more of a challenge to decarbonize certainly than the light duty vehicle sector. It also, I think when you start talking about heavy vehicles and transportation, you know, 18 wheelers, that sort of thing. One of the things that I think we're going to need to see a little bit more movement on before that whole industry sector really starts to move into electrification. I think that there's a willingness to move in that look in that direction. However, there's a desperate need for infrastructure 
right? If you think about the number of trucks just that cross the Canada-U.S. border, let alone the, the trucks that, you know, travel domestically from province to province or within provinces in Canada, just don't think about that for me. Just think about the number of trucks that cross the Canada-U.S. border every day. And then you look at that from an annual standpoint. That's literally tens of millions of truck crossings. That's a lot of infrastructure that would need to be in place to ensure that that movement of cargo can happen flawlessly because people's jobs depend on it, the Canadian economy depends on it. So that's that's one thing. And then, you know, addressing another point when you start talking about not directly related to electrification, but one of the biggest challenges right now in the world of international trade and transportation overall is the shortage of truck drivers. And finding qualified truck drivers or finding truck drivers that are, are people who are willing to be truck drivers, it's becoming an issue throughout the world and it's really becoming an issue in North America. So you take those two things and then again, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but throw COVID onto it again and how much that's disrupted things and, and whatever. We're certainly in a circumstance right now that I don't think it's a lack of will. I think it's a lack of all the right ingredients being there you know, to, to, to have it at the same stage that small vehicles are at at the moment, like passenger vehicles and light trucks. It's a different animal. Well, then tell me about that infrastructure need for the decarbonization of the 18-wheeler. Are, are you simply talking about a plug on the side of the road to recharge, or is there something more complex than that? Because it strikes me, if it takes a lot of time to charge up a Tesla, it's going to take a heck of a lot longer when you've got, you know, 14 more wheels to contend with. You're absolutely right. And I don't actually, I don't know the engineering behind what it's actually going to take or how long it would take to charge up an, an 18 wheeler. But what I can tell you is that when you look at how much, and I think COVID-19 and, and what's happened in the past uh, 15 months has really proven even to the average Canadian or the average American, you know, just think about the rush on toilet paper that we had and then how long it took to fill those shelves up again after the toilet paper, you know, disappeared in a heartbeat when when we shut down initially, the the movement of goods and the to get them into retail stores, to get parts to manufacturing lines, to get PPE to hospitals, to get vaccines to vaccine sites, these take trucks, planes, automobiles, trains. I mean, all that sort of thing, and you can't. That's not an area that you can sort of. Um, wander into without having the proper infrastructure to make sure that things are going to get to where they need to get to when they need to be there. Because if you don't have that infrastructure in place, the ripple effect on the economy could be really disruptive economically, as well as from a health and safety standpoint, when you do start talking about, you know, PPE and vaccines and just food onto grocery store shelves and, and all that sort of thing. So I think until until some of that engineering, because I don't know, Michael, how long it takes to, you know, charge up the battery of an 18-wheeler. I don't personally know the answer to that question, but I think there's not a lot of willingness right now for companies to start saying, well, let's just do it anyway. Let's be on that bleeding cutting edge and let's have electrified trucks until they're confident that they know the infrastructure's out there and that the product can get to where it needs to be when it needs to be there with the infrastructure in place to support it. You know, I think there's a hesitancy because we just we've proven that how fragile supply chains are and how how little it takes to disrupt supply chains to have empty door shelves. 
we've seen that in the past year. So, Megan, is that part of the reason why we're relying on passenger vehicles and light trucks to meet these greenhouse gas emissions in the first place? Is the future of the automotive sector focused so solely on electrifying um, the average individual's vehicle and the Amazon delivery truck that the 18-wheelers aren't the focus right now? We know that we need to reduce emissions from every mode of transportation, but the pathway for each one is going to be unique and each one is going to have unique challenges. So um, the light duty vehicle sector, again, that represents the biggest chunk of transportation emissions, about half of them, and uh, and the technology is there. So, so that's where we're going to get our early wins and uh, in terms of meeting our 2030 reduction targets. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't also need to make efforts in the other modes as well. And, uh, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't just uh, just remind all of us that Canada did release its new strengthened climate plan just uh, in December of 2020. And uh, we do mention all modes in that plan. And for the heavy duty vehicle sector, we, we do commit to consulting with industry and with other stakeholders to look at what are the the type of zero emission vehicles needed for the heavy duty vehicle space? How do we make sure that those do come to market in Canada and that they are available to meet the needs of industry, just like like Joy has spelled out? And you know, I think when it comes to the heavy duty vehicle sector, um, we know that the solution might not be just uh, electrification. That we're going to have to also need to consider other fuels, uh, whether it's it's hydrogen. Um, biofuels, but there may be a mix of solutions, just again, given Canada's, uh, you know, massive geography and uh, and what we what we require of these vehicles to to meet our trade and uh, and goods needs. I keep reading mixed reports. Anytime I, I turn to one report, it says something different than the last one about millennial car buying habits. This is a demographic that is certainly very conscientious about their carbon footprints, um, and there are expectations, depending again on who you read, that this is a generation that is not going to buy a car. They're just going to do vehicle on demand, just like an Uber type situation whenever they need it. Um, are we relying on this demographic to contribute to the, to this? Joy, give me a, a sense as to when we talk about the future of the automotive sector, where does the millennial car buying habit play into this? I've got 20-somethings in my family, nieces and nephews, and, and their view towards the vehicle is very different than, than my view was when I was their age. I couldn't wait to get my first car, and I couldn't wait to get a driver's license. And having your own, owning your first vehicle was definitely a status symbol, and it was something that you, you very much wanted to have happen, at least for most of us. And that, you're right, Michael, and that that's changed a lot. But by the same token, I think that there's also been um, a switch because even even my husband, who's certainly not a millennial, he's a, he's a baby boomer like I am, and he was thinking car on demand, right? Because as we start approaching our towards our um, retirement years, car on demand sounds like a great idea, except then along came COVID again, right? And suddenly it's like, oh, car on demand. Is that such a great idea when social distancing and, and all the rest of it? So I don't actually know where those trends are going to take us but i do think that there is going to be um a buying trend and the view towards the automobile is definitely changing i see it happening i see it around i see it happening around my own dining room table 
And, 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 and if I could add to that, Michael, I think, you know, you do raise a really good point because um, the, the, the path to reducing our emissions is not just about decarbonizing um, our vehicles and our modes of transportation. It is also about shifting to, to different ways of, of living. And so be that active transportation, you know, more cycling, um, whether it's more public transit, that those are all also part of the part of the solution. I would say though that, you know, Canadians do love their um, their SUVs and their light duty pickup trucks. And uh, you know, th those cars do tend to emit more emissions. And um, so when we talk about the transition to zero emission vehicles, uh, given, given that Canadians do favor those larger vehicles and there are fewer uh, zero emission vehicle options in those segments right now, uh, meeting our sales targets will really uh, rely partly on more of those types of vehicles coming to market. Um, and we are starting to see that. We're just starting to see more of those types of segments of vehicles enter enter the market. So again, uh, just showing that we're we're I think at a at a very uh, key key time in the evolution of this issue. But we're also so very fickle. Every time the price of go go juice goes through the roof, people decide, oh no, I'm not going to buy a gas guzzler, and they go for the the smaller vehicles. And then soon as the price of gasoline becomes reasonable again, that's when we go back to the SUVs. Michael, I would I would have to agree with that, and I and I would say though that one of the one of the things I am hearing is there's a concern, and I don't know from an engineering perspective if it's a valid concern or not, but there's a concern that the electrification of things like the the pickup truck, because yes, I agree with Megan, Canadians certainly love their SUVs, they also love their pickup trucks, and if you're going to head up to cottage country and be towing a boat and and sea dews and all the rest of it. Um, one of the concerns that I've heard from that younger generation I was just talking about was will electric vehicles have the power that it takes to haul all the toys to cottage country? Different segue, but uh, cottage country becoming potentially a now that we uh, can work from anywhere type mentality where cottage country is looking at becoming more of where people live on a full-time basis. That whole, is there enough power in the pickup trucks to for the Canadian lifestyle? On your comment about uh, Canadians being being fickle on their purchases, and and uh, I think that's why uh, the federal government has tried to put in place measures to encourage the uptake of zero emission vehicles on, on many fronts. You know, we've 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 invested million, hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, charging infrastructure. Uh, we have a purchase incentive at the point of sale for zero emission vehicles. Um, there, there's there's much that's happening, but I do think there's still, you know, work to do on the side of education and awareness of consumers. You know, we, we still need to dispel some of the myths around, uh, around range anxiety, around uh, performance in, you know, adverse weather conditions, and, and life cycle costs is another key one. You know, the, the upfront purchase price of zero emission vehicles does still tend to be higher than traditional gas vehicles. But when you look at total costs of ownership with maintenance and, and fuel savings, um, the, the, the zero emission vehicles, and in particular the battery electric, tend to come out ahead. But, but these are things that, uh, that I think we need to still do a better job of educating Canadians on so they can, can make uh, the choices that are best for their, for their lifestyles, but that also uh, you know, meet their needs. Which brings me full circle back to the question of, is Canada creating the vehicles of the future that Canadians of the future are going to want? 
Uh, and before we even get to that, w- in, Joy, you've referenced a few times now the impact that COVID-19 has had on the industry. Let's talk about that from that supply chain perspective. Just-in-time delivery. What is the future of just-in-time delivery for the automotive sector after we learned the impact of COVID-19 on that really universally used method of building a vehicle now? In order for a just-in-time strategy to work every day of the week, every week of the year, for all years, you need to have everything functioning at all times. And we've sort of learned from COVID-19 that no one can control. We've also learned um, in more recent weeks when there was that ransomware attack in the United States on the gasoline pipeline for the Eastern seaboard. And suddenly you had gas stations that were running out of gasoline and the impact that that was having on the movement of goods. You, You can't get from point A to point B with the truck, even if you've got the truck and the driver and it's all loaded, if there's no gas to put in the truck. So, you know, to understand that there's so many things that can impact it just in time. It worked well for 25 years. Well, it worked well over a 25 year period where it went from being like a concept to being really fine tuned in the later years for a just in time industry. I think a lot of that now is is being questioned to some degree, but I think there's never gonna be a management willingness to walk away from just in time simply because of the money that it saves. So now we're, we're looking to have to come up with a balance. We want all of the attractiveness of a just-in-time inventory methodology so that you can, you're can you only incurring costs at the exact moment in time when you need it and not a moment before. And that piled on top of all of the realities that trade wars, gasoline shortages, you know, global pandemics, and other such things can pop up and disrupt this method, this 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 strategy so quickly that you have to be flexible enough in order to be able to flip to a plan B maybe more easily than people in the past were prepared to flip to a plan B. And that's the sort of thing that I'm seeing. They still want the best parts of it. There's now a recognition that they need a far more flexible supply chain and a far more robust plan B. Well, then, Joy, let me ask you an awkward question with Megan present in the room. (laughs) Is Ottawa doing enough to help accelerate the Canadian automotive industry to meet not only greenhouse gas emission goals, but to meet demand globally? Oh, thanks for the awkward question. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, Realistically, we just need to step back seriously as as Canadian business decision makers and as the Canadian government and understand the role that we play in global supply chains. I like to say that Canada tends to punch above its weight class on the global stage, meaning that we're the second largest country on the planet from a footprint perspective. We are what, the 12th or 13th, 14th, something like that, largest economy on the planet, yet we're about the 35th, 36th largest from a population standpoint. So, and we're we're a member of the G7 based more on history maybe than on recent, you know, economic robustness compared to maybe 70 years ago and what the world looked like 70 years ago at the fighting of the wars and stuff. So I, I say all of that because is Ottawa doing enough um, this, this question is far bigger than Ottawa. Ottawa needs to be lined up and working in conjunction with Washington, which needs to be lined up and working in conjunction with London, Berlin, Beijing, 
you know, soul. There's a number of different players in this. So I think it's a tough question to answer. And this is not a political question. This goes across, cuts across all parties. And it's certainly nonpartisan. There's a recognition that as Canadians, we need to um, really look at what our allies are doing and trying to ensure that our domestic policy is in line with that and one step ahead. And where we truly have objections, we need to really make sure that our alliances with those various countries around the world are uh, strong and that we have a good channel of communication. And in recent years, that's been problematic all around the world. Protectionism and just, um, uh, you know, has just sort of raised its ugly head where trade is, is maybe not the cooperative, calm, economic discussion that it was of decades past. And now it's becoming a little bit more heated and being seen as a way to push back and to, you know, be a little bit more protectionist than it has been in previous years. So long-winded way to say, you know, regardless of who's in, in power in Ottawa, we need to be aware of the role we play in global supply chains and be strategic with the power that we do have. But we don't have enough power to control our own destiny in and of itself. Let's then wrap up this conversation by asking this one basic, simple question that is the overarching question for this conversation. What does the future of the automotive sector look like to you? The future of the sector looks like somewhere where the Canadian auto manufacturing sector continues to be vibrant and uh, keeping pace with, you know, global evolution and technology and continues to be an important source of employment and, and skilled skilled jobs for Canadians. Um, and at, at the same time, it's also a place where, where it is uh, contributing to meeting our greenhouse gas emission targets in a in a in a way of partnership and that's constructive and uh, that will help us to achieve our goals. I think the future of the automotive sector in Canada is going to sort of still have the same story arc, meaning it's still going to be an unbelievably important industry sector for Canada as a country. Um, I think that the innovation that we saw through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and into the 70s, which really sort of put Canada on the foot, you know, created Canada's footprint in North America relative to our role in that automotive industry within North America, it's about to dramatically change, but I don't think that footprint is going to get any smaller. I think it's going to potentially change shape, meaning, you know, instead of um, maybe some of the traditional activities that we played in the past. Um, those activities might shift around, but we have a really important role to play. And I think it, I agree with Megan, it's still going to be uh, a good jobs creator for Canada. It's still going to drive a big chunk of the Canadian economy. And I still think it's a good news story. And I still think it's very much a Canadiana story. Canada is in the car business, even though we don't have an OEM to our national name, we are in the car business. Well, maybe Project Arrow gives us our first flagship vehicle. I personally love the idea. As a Canadian, I personally love that idea. Joy, Megan, thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Anytime. Joy Knott is a partner in the trade and customs practice at KPMG Canada. Megan Nichols is the Director General of Environmental Policy at Transport Canada. Still to come, from a physically distant C.D. Howe Institute, June 24th, Employee Ownership Trusts, is it a good model for Canadian prosperity? We'll put that question to Dr. Roger Martin of the Rotman School of Management. 
Social Capital Partners Managing Director, John Shell, and the President and CEO of Ellis Dawn, Jeff Smith. And on the 25th, the state of health and healthcare data. We'll learn where we're at and where we need to go with Statistics Canada's Lynn Barr-Telford, Don Drummond of Queen's University, and Kathleen Morris of the Canadian Institute of Health Information. And July 13th, Barriers to Mobility, Land Transfer Taxes as a Municipal Tool, with the Institute's Director of Public Affairs, Ben Dacus, Councillor Shelley Carroll of the City of Toronto, and the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board's Jason Mercer. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.